Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So, um, growing up on the Cape Flats, which is the hood for the non-South Africans, I had this friend who had a drug addiction, and we were very good friends. Um, and on the Cape Flats, addiction is kind of part of the lifestyle. And so you could say this was like a lint behavior for this friend. And uh, I didn't hold it against him. Like, I don't think we should hold any lint behavior against anyone. It's what people do with their lint behaviors, particularly Christians and Christian leaders, that matters. And so uh, we were really great friends. But uh, eventually this friend started stealing from me to feed his habit. And he would be very sorry when he did it. Um, and I'd be forgiving afterwards. But after a while, this pattern just started to cause our friendship to become dysfunctional. Now, in cross-cultural relationships, you can have everything in common. You can have great affinity and love for each other. But unless you, do, unless you deal with the racial learning, uh, the relationship becomes dysfunctional. And evangelical leaders could possibly perpetuate the same mistakes that the reformers and early evangelicals made as they go along. And so I want to give you three reasons why I think we must speak about race. Number one, we must speak about race for mission-enhancing unity. We, we need to deal with the animosity, the racial tension for the sake of the mission and for the unity that we need to do the mission in our local churches and in our movements. Number two, we must speak about race because urban centers require competent cross-cultural ministry. Um, urban centers are growing fast, and they're all multicultural, and, and race is a big part of being able to do cross-cultural ministry effectively. And then my third goal is to encourage us to engage with, not accept wholesale, but engage with the social sciences rather than reject them, because I think that they can help us discern what is the case, as uh, theologian Miroslav Wolf says, to get reconciliation, you have to agree on what was the case, and the social sciences help us figure that out. And so the social sciences are producing lots of material on racial socialization, but there's an understandable uncertainty from Bible-believing people about how to engage with this material. Now, I want to suggest that the category of idolatry provides a very helpful, albeit very challenging, framework to understand racial idolatry. And so I want to give three ways to understand race as idolatry and then 10 one-liner application steps. Number one. Race is a social construct. The refrain, work of human hands, reflects the idolatry of choice in the Old Testament. Works of human hands describes idols as reflections of the imagination. Similarly, the Apostle Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Philosophy, in one sense, is, are things that people have imagined, and some forms of philosophy can be idols that take people captive. Race is one of these things, and that's precisely what it's done. It's developed as a social construct in the 17th century, perfected in the 19th century to legitimize European colonialism. And before the 17th century, no one thinks of themselves as black or as white. And despite the fact that modern science has proven that no such thing as race exists, people all over the world for many, many years now have been taken captive by it. And I want to ask the question, why? I want to suggest that because C.S. Lewis puts it like this, we have desires that this world can't satisfy, but it's desires that idols offer to satisfy through making promises to us. So firstly, idols are works of human hands, and secondly, they make 
promises that they fail to keep. Racial idols make false promises. Idolatry can be understood as relying on something else to give what only God can give. And so, for example, in Hosea 14 verse 3, Israel enters into a treaty with Assyria for protection. And God calls it idolatry. There's no statues, but God says that's idolatry. You're depending on them for the security that you're supposed to be getting from me. Now, the idol of whiteness makes many promises to people. One of these promises is that white hegemony will produce stable, effective, fruitful leadership. Put white leaders in charge, and you'll have stable, fruitful growth. Let me use as an example the Reformation and their participation with uh, colonialism. Because you had only white leaders in charge of things, their normalization of racial sin resulted in the instability of global mission. And as a result, the promise is stability, but what it works out to be is instability. Consider another example, the homogenous unit principle, advocated by evangelicals like Peter Wagner and David McGravin in the 1970s. And just remember what's happening in the 1970s. This is just a few years after the civil rights movement. Some parts of the world are still dealing with the effects of colonialism. South Africa is still in the throes of apartheid. And in the 1970s, in this context of mass racial injustice, evangelicals are suggesting that we build homogenous churches. And here's the principle that they outlined at Lausanne. People like to become Christians without crossing racial, linguistic, or class barriers. That is, the barriers to the acceptance of the gospel are often more sociological than theological. People reject the gospel not because they think it is false, but because it strikes them as alien they imagine that in order to become Christians, they must renounce their own culture, lose their own identity, and betray their own people. White evangelicals in the 1970s are essentially deciding to protect the idol of race rather than build multiculturally. The promise is stable, effective, fast-growing churches, but as we know, the Bible is clear that homogeneity always leads to dysfunction. 1 Corinthians 12 outlines this for us, and uh, it's, it's all about this body metaphor, and it needs these different parts to achieve its mission. The body has a mission. Some of the parts are about spiritual gifts, verse 1, but then there are parts in verse 13 that refer to Jew and Gentile, that's ethnicity, and economic differences like slave and free, which are required to make the body function as it should. And beloved, whenever the body decides to rearrange what God has arranged, verse 18, and make something dispensable that God has said is indispensable, it starts to lose its functionality and not even realize that when one part suffers, it's a reflection of the whole thing suffering. We in our generation need to be clear. Monocultural churches in racialized societies perpetuate racism and racial injustices. Homogenous churches in racialized societies protects the idol of race. And we need to build multiculturally at every level, in the movement, in our local churches, even in our friendships, we need to build multiculturally. And lastly, racial idols. You have to take a minute off my time now. Racial idols are fiercely protected. The the reason you sense the frustration in my tone is because we've had this conversation so many times. And these conversations happen because there's a protection of something. Now, you are familiar with Tim Keller's refrain that idols are good things that we love inordinately and they become ultimate things. 
And that's because as one, um, as Ezekiel 14 verse 3 puts it, they are set up in our hearts. We love them, so we protect them. Like the scene in uh, Lord of the Rings when Bilbo Baggins casually says, I'm going to hand over the ring to, to Gandalf. But then he starts getting upset with Gandalf when Gandalf asks for it because he loves it, so he protects it. Sometimes in evangelical circles, I feel like we say, oh, no, it's casual. There's no race problem. We don't even see race. But then when we are pressed on why it seems so monocultural, why it seems perhaps a little bit middle class, and when we are pressed about who's leading and why that seems so same, or why the friendship circles seem to be the same, or when we are pressed on why we tend to be on the wrong side of social justice movements like Fees Must Fall over here, and Black Lives Matters in the States, not leading these things, when we are pressed about why people of color seem to be leaving the church traumatized, it's often met with anger and frustration and defensiveness. I want to suggest that as shepherds, we shouldn't be using these kinds of defense mechanisms. As ones who have been saved by grace, we should be accepting people unconditionally. Um, there's a deeper theological defensiveness, however, that I want to think that I think is more destructive. It's the slave Bible that misses Jeremiah and Galatians. It's Charles Hodge and Whitfield and and um, and Jonathan Edwards who used the Bible, weaponizing it to fight for slavery and then vilifying the abolitionists. Um, in 1974, John Stott, as a minority voice, sought to correct his own evangelical tribe from the dual mandate or the seed fruit mandate. Billy Graham, reflecting the majority view, was saying that if you just preach the fruit of the gospel, the seed of social change will just grow automatically. And uh, here's what he said. He said, I'm convinced that if the church went back to its main task of proclaiming the gospel and getting people converted to Christ, it would have far greater impact on the social, moral, and psychological needs of men than any other thing it could possibly do. And they, they fought Stott so severely that at this conference, John Stott in Lazar 1974 had to threaten to step down and leave the movement completely if uh, Billy Graham's vision was implemented and Stott lost that debate. But we must reject this false dichotomy between justice, social justice, and the gospel that leads to a bad practice, particularly in racialized societies where racial injustice continues. Rene Padilla, a Latin American evangelical, presents the content of the gospel as a message that is one, eschatological, two, Christological, three, soteriological, and has a call to repentance and faith. Now, we can't put the word primarily next to any one of those aspects. If you put the word primarily next to number one and say the gospel is primarily eschatological, you end up with a social gospel. If you put the word primarily next to number three and say the gospel is all about just forgiveness for sins and is just soteriological, you end up with a gospel that lacks any social dimensions. Jesus doesn't do that when he proclaims the gospel. Jesus is very comfortable to proclaim the gospel as the beginning of the kingdom of God in Mark 1.15. And Jesus is very comfortable to say that the gospel is about, for, is about liberation for the oppressed in Luke 4 and it's good news for the poor. We need to hold together the content of the gospel and not prioritize and separate one aspect above the other, especially in contexts where there is injustice. And here's my greater concern. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. If we get the theology wrong, the practice gets deformed. And people 
aren't able to reconcile what they hear with what they see. If we say we are passionate about evangelism and God loves the world in, 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 in cross-cultural context, but then the, the, the community doing the proclaiming looks very monocultural and seems sometimes to be protecting injustice, the, the message isn't consistent with the medium. What we say and what we do needs to align if we want evangelistic success in cross-cultural contexts. And therefore, as theologian David Bosch puts it, the call to conversion should begin with the repentance of those who do the calling. So 10 application steps. Number one, differentiate between race, ethnicity, culture, and Christian identity to enhance cross-cultural contextualization. Number two, repent of racial idolatry. And that doesn't mean you have to have all the implementation steps ready. It just means that you need to have a broken and contrite heart and say, God, please help. I don't know how to do this exactly. But that also means having a change of mind. And so I've prepared um, some notes for you with loads of resources on the notes as you leave because we have to have a change of mind through reading books, doing courses. And we can't say we've repented, but we remain incompetent when it comes to cross-cultural ministry. Number three, diversify your leadership. If leaders of color keep leaving, then you have to go back to step two. And that also means raising up leaders who come from working class backgrounds and planting more churches in working class neighborhoods. Number four, love the Lord your God and walk humbly through race discussions without defensiveness. Number five, distinguish evangelism from mission, but don't separate or prioritize the one over the other. What we do includes fellowship and service and social justice and evangelism. Number six, Preach the full gospel, not a truncated gospel that excludes justice for the oppressed. We cannot call ourselves a gospel-centered movement and only emphasize three-quarters of the gospel. Number seven, speak out and fight for justice as an outworking of your gospel ministry. It can't be outsourced to somebody else. While that is important, silence on these issues is complicity. Number eight, don't build homogenous churches which will protect and perpetuate racism. Build healthy, functional, multicultural churches that are going to be salt and light in the society. Number nine, be bold in the Lord. Expect persecution. People might reject what you say and reject you, but the Lord takes the upright into his counsel. And then lastly, you can't work through your socialization and lead the process of transformation at the same time. You have to make space for other voices and other people to help set the pace and the trajectory for the transformation. Thank you very much.